Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover on the show, feel free to email us at fromnowheretonothingpodcast at gmail.com or contact us on our Facebook page. After discussing nihilism last week and the implications of a lack of meaning, today we'll look at what constitutes the social institutions we participate in throughout our lives. While these two themes don't seem directly related at first glance, the truth is that various flavors of nihilism have contributed to human institutions throughout recent history. What effects does this philosophy and others have on how we organize and conduct our societies and ourselves? Listen in as we explore institutional foundations. You know, I was thinking, <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't send this to you because it was an audio clip from, from NPR, but there was a discussion this, this week, uh, I think midweek, about uh, nihilism and how it is used by people with sometimes fascistic intent. Uh, because people who say they don't believe in anything are those who are most manipulable mm. into a new kind of institution or, or social order. It was a very interesting discussion, and and so it, and it gelled with what we were talking about. But there there is a definite connection between the two things. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting because um, you know, like we were talking about last week, and like I mentioned in the intro, this is this is really a three part series what we're doing here but the three parts don't seem to be if, if i think that if we didn't mention it was a series probably the listeners wouldn't wouldn't think that anything of it you know, like the middle three star wars movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, you know there's nothing Jab. right <laughs> so yeah last week we talked about nihilism and you know essentially the philosophy that you know there there's a lack of meaning in things this week we're talking about institutional foundations and um, I, I'm thinking probably the majority of this discussion is going to revolve around political institutions. But, you know, I think that that's because there's some overlap, yeah. but there is some differences when we look at oh, yeah. businesses or religious institutions or purely social institutions on how they function. So we'll probably get into those details a little bit, but um, let's start by saying what will we be talking about when we discuss institutional foundations? I think for many people, when you say the word institution, you're thinking of a structure, maybe a, a, a bricks and mortar structure. And the, and the etymology of this one is interesting because it too is not, it's not ancient. It, uh, a word that first gets used in the 1300s, um, first French and then beyond Regarding the church, the Catholic church, uh, but the, the word itself in, in French uh, essentially means foundation, something established. And so it's, it's vague. Um, and, uh, let's see, there's, it's a disposition towards something. It's an arrangement. <laughs> And and so and and then it starts getting applied to very very specific institutions. So the church being the foundation of social structure or that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, education, 
politics, corporate world. But there are so many institutions that we can talk about. Yeah, and I think that the thing that, that's interesting about it that I'm sure we'll talk about as we get further on is that um, you know these things, much like a lot of things we look at in philosophy, these aren't sort of siloed categories, right? Your overarching political environment has a strong effect on your educational environment your religious environment especially you know back in the the middle ages or or during the renaissance had a, a huge impact on your political environment you know your business environment is impacted by you know so right. all of these things are interconnected in, in some way or another and each one has um its own idiosyncratic um qualities as well so by the 1800s you get into a place where an in, the word institution in a colloquial sense means something that's been around for a while <laughs> um, something that's appointed, something that's established, but, but the the appointed starts sounding governmental. Right? Yeah. I appoint you to do this. Yes, yeah, so it just keeps shifting. So, where do institutional foundations come from? There's a. I I hesitate about him, but it's because life is so always complicated. One of the philosophers who most dedicated himself, he's, I think, 91 now, but to talking about this in the 60s and 70s, um, his early, earlier work, is a man named John Searle. And I don't know if you encountered him in, in your researches for this, but he, he talked, he was talking about language as he was following Wittgenstein, and he was talking about language as the necessary um, structure without which there couldn't be institutions. And he was looking, so he started blending philosophy and sociology in a very complicated way. I'm not going to try to go all through that because it would be a dry lecture, and you know, we don't want to do that. Uh, but it's problematic because John Searle eventually lost his faculty emeritus status in. in in his 80s because of a, a number over the 21st century, a number of accusations of um, inappropriateness with female graduate students and so on, and, which deeply saddens me, outrages me, you know, on behalf of those students and they spoke up and things happened eventually. Still doesn't diminish the work in the 60s, I think in the 70s that he was doing about language, um, categorizing how we use language, and that mirrors what we do in institutions. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, because, you know, when we think about where do institutional foundations come from, yeah. I think that the question it raises is, are they naturally occurring or are they social constructs right there's you know? and i think they're i think we'd go with i would go with the latter that they are definitely constructs that that we we build <coughs> this is where it gets really dicey because we we build these constructs seemingly to make certain that we have established there's that word freedoms or rights um 
But we also have rules by which we are supposed to proceed with our lives. The institutions, those who establish institutions, all of the people who are in the muddy process of establishing an institution set up those rules. And so it, it creates, artificially constructs a social order. And it's not necessarily the right social order because there, every institution is made up of human beings and therefore it's flawed. You know, if I, if I, if I skip to the chase, the, I skip to the end of the, and come back, I just, in my experience and my thinking about this through a life of teaching and engaging with all kinds of institutions, um, all institutions eventually fail. They get severely tested. They fail. They, they've, some of them succeed and fail together, but many institutions lose sight of what their purpose was in the start. And, and they don't have to stay the way they were hundreds of years ago. They shouldn't because that's not going to last. But, uh, there are some institutions that, that take as their first principle that they need to grow and grow. And when your first principle is growth, you necessarily lose sight of what your mission was. Hmm. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of reading on mythology recently and sort of the structure of you know myths around the world and stuff and that's that's sort of a trope that kind of runs through um some of them is is this idea that you know everything has a life cycle like like a human being right and even this sort of uh you know for lack of a better word mysticism has started to become infused into scientific frameworks in new physics right which isn't to say that it's it's baseless but you know physicists are looking at the universe and saying well really the universe had a beginning we know and it will likely have an end so it has a lifespan and life itself will have a lifespan right it couldn't right. have existed in the early parts and at some point in the future it will be impossible for it to exist and consciousness even even the abstraction of consciousness has a lifespan, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it has arisen. Um, and we don't know if humans are, or, you know, mammals or whatever you want to say were the first things to become conscious or where the last things in the universe to become conscious are, but everything has a lifespan. And, you know, and, and the stories, the fables and myths and things that we tell ourselves tend to be, have symbolic representations of that. Yes, they do. And I think that that is a lot of them are, um, sort of cautionary tales for institutions, you know, that say, you know, listen, you, you know, the old king or whoever, you know, he starts out with a good intention, you know, trying to, to bring order to the kingdom, but then he sort of strangles the kingdom with overwhelming order. And then a new hero has to rise up to, to take him down. These sorts of things. You, you, you know, the, the aphorism, uh, uh, if the hero lives long enough, he lives long enough to become the villain. Mm. Uh, so, it's, and and this this is very interconnected. When we talked about all of the Aesop fables that we chose to discuss, Aesop fables, in a sense, are an institution, or were 
These are the stories we go for, the moral. People just want the moral. What's the line? We had lovely discussions about, about that. If you just cut into the chase for the moral, you don't need the story because the story is going to keep instructing you and be fresh if you think about it. But it's that, that thinking that's required. The institutions are normative. And what that means is they establish cultural or societal uh, norms, uh, the baseline uh, expectations of behavior and then those the, and that but then that goes down a micro chain and up into a macro chain of okay so uh, businesses now they, they love the rhetorical stance of saying um our the culture of this company is okay so so now we're we can think biologically we know what clusters of cultures do inside of our own bodies the culture of the institution that that means the institution says it's distinguishing itself from all other institutions but just as a as a a point of illustration almost every school will say that its its values are unique to its community and you look down through its list of bullet pointed values and they are precisely the same ones as the community 20 miles away or a thousand miles away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're different than everybody else, except we're not. We're the, we, you know, and so, so these, but these norms, these, these, uh, this normative function of, of social institutions is about organizing beliefs and behavior. Okay. And once you start saying, well, this is what we need in order to survive, then you start, well, now that we've survived, so we need to flourish. Now, let's go back to just surviving. We don't want people to flourish because flourishing, that's messy and we can't control it as much. And that's when institutions get um, or are made to um, do the things which they aren't uh, doing at their best. And yes, I won't mention names because everybody knows who I'm talking about. But the, when you, when you tell, when you, when you as a, uh, if you have the power as a, uh, as a governmental figure, to go in and sh- and tear a, a university apart. A university is an institution. It grows out of the culture of the people that is hired to work, who are specialists in their fields, who know the things that people ought to, ought to know and to question and to change as it goes on. You come in and you intrude and you say, nope, lopping this off, lopping that off. Why? Because I don't like it. Why? Because I don't find it moral. Why? Because it upsets my values. Well, okay, then you're engaging in an act of, of violence. Um, it's intellectual violence. It's lobotomizing a place that, that was, uh, for the most part, uh, 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 thriving. And when people, when authoritarian influences do this kind of thing, they are countering what might be the only natural process, the evolution of an individual becomes the evolution of the institutions that individuals build. And when your primary purpose is to tear things down and block things off, you use whatever metaphor you want. And an institution has a natural growth, but an institution gets concentrated totally on its growth, then it gets unhealthy. But an institution will change. But it will change of its own accord. Yeah. All right, man. There's so many things. Sorry, that are, oh, there's so many things that are going on now in my head that are really cool. But I think that the big take, what 
the point we should focus on yeah. early in the discussion yeah. here that I think is cool is that there's this tension arising <clears throat> between the nihilism that we talked about last week, <clears throat> which posits that there's no meaning in anything, yeah. versus the overemphasis on meanings and morals as being um, static, never-changing things. Like like you, what you were just talking about, you know, adjusting policy in a tyrannical way because things must stay the same or the morals in Aesop's fables, right? Where we say, you know, well, what's the moral? And we don't care about what the story is right. rather than looking at the story itself and letting it tell us that. So there's this tension between no meaning and meaning as the static Absolute thing. Absolutist meaning, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's where for the foundations of institutions, that's a very interesting thing to focus on. Yep. So who are some of the early thinkers of institutional design? You know, it's it's interesting because there's so many different ways you can approach that because institutional is, and, and I'm not hedging the question, it's just there, you can talk about architectural, architectural, when you're talking about, again, stones, bricks, mortar, whatever, that the design of a of a space in which an institution will flourish is integral to what the values of that institution are. This is what architects are about. So first, in a general sense, I'm going to say architects. Yeah, and I, I think that's an often overlooked aspect of it because if you think about it, when you had this Greek revival architecture, mm -hmm. right, with the pillars and with these other things, um, that makes you feel something when you walk into that building versus a lot of people don't know this, but the man who is responsible for designing many of the public schools in the United States in the 1970s was the same man contracted to design the prisons for the United States prison mm. system. So yep. if you drive past a lot of the schools that were made in that time frame, the 1970s, yes. you go, the only difference between this school and a prison is a barbed wire fence around the outside, right? And you go, well, how does that affect children going in? And then you think about what kids have thought about school in the decades that have gone on since then. And by, by and large, a lot of the, a lot of the responses have, have been the, this sort of feeling of entrapment or this oh, feeling yeah. of forcing, you know, being forced to be there. The idea yeah. of this discovery or open discussion that you might if, you had a, a, you know, Greek revival architecture, right? You know, you can't do that everywhere. But, you know, you think about Plato talking about the Republic or Aristotle in his politics, mm -hmm. right? These were the initial institutional Formative designs. Formative institutional designs, exactly. Yeah. So we go back to the old ones again, right? Mm -hmm. But then we hop up forward into the 20th century with Michel Foucault, who talked about, uh, to the consternation of many, uh, the, the panopticon, the, the the design of a prison such that there would need to be one or two or three people to run the prison because of the way it was designed. It, it's very complicated. I can't do it justice sitting here in, in the space of, of some seconds, but but that's a that's a really glaring example when you suggest whopping change. Now, in, in educational institutions, schools, because you brought it up, they were, uh, I can't name the group organization that, that did this, but I but I worked within a space. For a while, there's a, a school design uh, process called open concept. And what that meant was that you didn't have walls 
with lockable doors. You had barrier, well, not barriers even, you know, partial walls. So there was space between the ceiling and the and, and the the walls were sort of carpeted, and <laughs> it, it it afforded some possibilities. It also was kind of difficult because you could hear the sounds from everywhere, and so the cacophony, even though it was perhaps controlled, still was an, an interfering into the process of going on into an individual classroom. But it was attempted. For the most part, it went away, but not everywhere. And and the, and the great thing is that people keep trying different designs. How should I? Some some places, uh, computer services, in any institution is a smaller institution within it. Uh, how do we wire? How do we set up a computer lab in order to best advance? The point, which was in the uh, college or high school, uh, and then uh, uh, not an entertainment spot, but uh, how do we best learn about using computers? What's the, the most human, humanistic way of using these mechanistic tools? And, and that's an institutional decision. And if it's a top-down decision, computer services gets, uh, gets to tell you how you're going to use it and what tools you're going to use. Uh, sanctioned by the upper echelon of administration. In some places, faculty are approached first and say, if we were going to be considering redesign, what would you like to see in this space from a pedagogical teaching viewpoint? And, and so that's an institution being flexible and talking to the people who are actually doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, <laughs> on our architecture, you, you think about religious institutions as well, and sort of the, the arc of architecture has played in the, the physical buildings of those throughout time. Gothic cathedrals. Yeah. I mean, the whole point is to have the weight of the heavens up there in the shadows, sometimes with, with classic heart uh, evoking God and the angels looming over you and reducing you to the size you really are by the expansiveness of the building. It's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, and that, again, creates an interesting tension, right? Because you can see how there could be a, a, a genuine, authentic um, inspiration of awe or the sublime, but you can also see how there could be a manipulation mm -hmm. of sensory perceptions in order to use power to control a, a group of people, which happened significantly during the time that these types of buildings flourished. Yes, that's the tension. So we've talked about architecture. Um, why don't we go to that that time period or a little beyond that? We'll go to the Enlightenment, right? You have Rousseau and Locke and those. What did they say about kind of institutional design? Well, part of the impetus of that time was to draw out whether idealistically or, or or realistically, to try to 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 assert an uh, institutional priority of maintaining individual rights. What's a government supposed to do? We and we talked about this once. So it's, uh, you know, is 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 the government's role to just stop us from being barbaric and tearing ourselves apart with the red tooth and claw? Of, human nature. Um, 
is it to balance the, the, the state? The state is to help balance the individual and say, here, flourish, flourish. But we'll make sure that you're safe enough so you can flourish. Or is it uh, to have a, a, a police state that says, don't flourish too much. Um, flourish within the ways we say that you can, or else we're going to get you. You know, that's a reductively simplistic, but that's really what Locke and Rousseau and, and, and many of their, their peers were talking about. What is the role of this institution? Yeah, kind of broadly put under the, the term of a social contract, right? Yeah. What, is, what is the relationship between the will of the people and the institutions that they, that they themselves bring up to govern? And institutions are of that kind, of the social contract kind. The work of Rousseau was remarkably landlock of embedded in what our own founders were thinking about. They were they were making up institutions out of whole cloth, but not entirely out of whole cloth because they were saying, "Well, we're not going to be a kingdom because we've all lived with kingdoms, right?" But but somehow. <laughs> Power is a very, very difficult and, and amorphous concept. And so what what do we do to satisfy? Well, what kind of thing do we set up? And so they essentially set up a system that was not going to move rapidly. It almost moved too slowly to get set up in the first place and came perilously close not, to not working. But you're in, in, integral, integrated into that whole system, built in, is debate, discussion, compromise. Take your time, think about this, talk about it, not talking at people, talking with people. We've all but lost that. It's still there. It's still there. Still, so the social institutions are dangling by a thread, but they're functioning right now because there isn't talking with. There's talking at. So the talking at is a defiance of what was intended, and so it's it's, it's of course the the institutions that were built for compromise and discussion are going to be way off kilter. Okay. Yeah, and I think that we see this. I think that a, a good example of some of this is looking at other institutions, even besides governments, right? Because mm -hmm. I think that we're seeing it happen um, some with business, right? After, after post pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think the businesses, by and large, are more centralized institutions than many others. You know, there's really, there's not a lot of democracy in a business, right? You have a president and an owner and a general manager and, and, you know, a CEO, these people that the sort of centralized power and then delegate down rather than having any input from the bottom up. And we've had unions in the past that have helped collectively bargain and, and sort of present the will of, of the, the group. Hmm. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not for or against either model because I think that there's cases where the centralized power oppresses the workers and there's cases where the collective bargaining protects people that shouldn't be protected right <clears throat> so strengths and, and weaknesses to either way but i think that what we're seeing happening now in the business environment as a whole in the united states is 
there's kind of being a bit of uh, a rebellion among the workers at the bottom. They're saying, no, we don't want to do this anymore. And Mm -hmm. now you're going to have to listen to us, you know? And so it's interesting to look at different institutions and see how centralized power is versus how democratized it is. And religious institutions are another one where you go, well, by and large, in those institutions, you have a doctrine that is established that is immutable. And there's really not any, Hmm. you know, there's, there's little room for discussion or for modification from, from the bottom, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas governments, on the other hand, um, really uh, almost no matter how centralized your government power is, it's not going to survive if you completely deface the, the, the people, right? You, you'd have, no matter how tyrannical you are, it's hard to develop the amount of military power and might that can just hold down the mass of the people. And when you do that, and when you try, and it's been done. I mean, we've seen it in history. Mm. It, 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 we, we see it in history now. When, you're, you've, when that's become the priority, the control, the control, the control, well, then other institutions falter and and die on the vine and and shred and because so much is concentrated on that idea of control because okay so i'm trying to try to this is so sweeping this is a good discussion i love this <laughs> but it's so but we have a, a situation where we have institutions that are functioning, law and justice systems, taking on step by step, in appropriate fashion, as was designed, um, in, uh, in indicting people for seeming crimes. That's how it's supposed to work. But when you have forces within a government itself that says, nope, that doesn't apply to me. That's not how it works. All these rules, nope, we're ignoring them because we know. That's extremely dangerous. And that's what's putting us on the precipice now. That's what the institutions are still functioning. But if this were in Star Trek, it's like the structural integrity is down to thirty <laughs> percent, Captain. Uh, and somehow in the Starship, it always just went right back up again. The Klingons stopped firing, and they go, "Oh, we got, we're back to one hundred percent structural." <laughs> <laughs> Would that were? But but I think that that trying to sweep in everything you were just talking about. There are so many smaller institutions within a larger one. It is uh, it is not unlike a human body, and I think even even um, people like Rousseau were thinking about that. They didn't have the biological, but they think it's you know systems within systems. Yeah, and so this leads into the next question pretty well, which is. Is there a meaning or framework that underlies human institutions, right? And here's where the nihilism conversation from last week comes in, right? Yeah. And the human body is a good example for this, right? Because if if I go, well, there's no meaning to my existence, right? 
And if you think about it, a lot of um, empiricist and reductionist scientific paradigms use this example, right? Our classical physics say, okay, well, there is no God. There's no any meaning for any of this. So it's just mechanistic, right? The Big Bang happened. And if we knew all of the conditions, we'd be able to predict everything. And everything up and through this conversation that we're having, right, is inevitable because of the way that things proceeded from those initial conditions. So therefore, there's no meaning. <clears throat> but then rationally, right, logically, you and I look at it and we go, well, every single second, my cells are using 10 trillion ATP molecules for energy with a highly advanced systematized paddle that must have taken, you know, billions of years of evolution, all this. You know, the, the low amount of entropy in the systems that we observe make us go, wait a minute, you know, well, if I, if I dumped a bucket of pennies out and they all came up heads up, that'd be pretty suspicious. But if I kept <laughs> doing it over and over again, right, you go, well, maybe there is a meaning underlying that. Yeah. And I'm not getting into the big metaphysical issues here of of God and, no, and all no, that, but no, no. for our discussion here with framework, right? If we go, well, there's no meaning to the human body. You go, well, then why would the human body <clears throat> exist, right? All of those subsystems, those things that you talked about, our bacteria, our cells, our, you know, our neurons, all of those things developed in a certain way to accomplish a certain task, thereby implying a meaning, right? So do our social institutions have an underlying meaning? Did they develop and coalesce in the ways that they do because of something that is a framework that's beneath them? I still think it's primarily constructed through the desires of the people who are frame building the framework. You know, I mean, Edward O. Wilson, Dawkins, or it's a science, a scientist, cognitivist, biologist, physicist, who will say, "Well, yeah, it's, our our meaning is reproduction. <laughs> we reproduce. Why? So that we can keep going. Why? Because that's what our our machine bodies do." I think there's more to it than that, but um, you know, I, I, I'm sloshy that way, uh, and I and I don't feel like I have to uh, defend it necessarily. But I don't think there's an ultimate meaning that is cast onto us by something beyond us. I don't see any reason to. That that's where I am. But uh, Edward O. Wilson, marvelous writer. The real problem of humanity is the following. He says this is a quotation. We have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And it is terrifically dangerous, and it is now approaching a point of crisis overall. Mm. Because our, our evolution of our emotions, one, one, what we know of Neanderthals, what we know of the Paleolithic age, what we intuit, we, we aren't all that different emotionally probably than than people a hundred thousand years ago we've talked about this hundred thousand thing we've, there's some coinage there's some writing there's some social grouping to stay safe there's uh, things that are more complicated than probably should have happened hmm. 
So it doesn't mean we don't change, but humanity seems to always, when things are changing, say, nope, I want to go back to whatever was. I want to go back to that perfect time when everything was just in balance. There was rose scent in the air all the time, and everybody knew their place. <clears throat> well, when you know your place, that means there is a place. And if there is a place, that means there's a hierarchy, and the hierarchy has been constructed by by social intent. And social intent with human beings, most of the time, is to control other people and therefore to assert a will that says, we got the right thing, you just go along with how we're doing it. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I think that if we we can look to nature and see that there are other animals that have social institutions, right? Mostly mammals. And it's usually just one. They don't have the multi-layered, you know, things that humans have. But you yeah. you have one social institution with a hierarchy. Um and you know, you can look at that and say, okay, well, what's the meaning of that institution? And, and, and the meaning of that is the survival of the group and, and reproduction, that sort of things. So that's probably the bedrock of human social institutions. But then they've progressed throughout time, right? And they've branched out into religious institutions and educational institutions, political institutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're developing over time, right? Till in the modern times, you would like to think to believe that everybody's um, ideal of an institution would be equality and, you know, personal freedoms and, you know, security and these sorts of things that, that are, you know, are idealistic. But where does the, where does the meaning for those come from, right? Because like you said, whenever, whenever those institutions make a misstep in their progression or evolution, the instinct of people is always to look to the old structure of the institution, the primeval one, right? And say, well, we wish things were back the way that they were. Why do, what is the underlying tension there that causes us to want to say things were better back then, even though we have this intellectual capacity to, capacity to say, well, this is what we actually want in the future idealistically. This is the change that we want. This is what we're trying to accomplish but just because there was a misstep, we want to go backwards. I think we collectively <clears throat> are desperately afraid that we will have to treat everyone equally. I think we're desperately afraid that people who are radically different than ourselves have the same rights that we do. We don't want to say it. Some of us in our collectivity, some of us in our collectivity want to disappear them and make them gone because they don't want people to be equal. The more you assert that you want equality and by setting more and more rules, you're going to achieve it, the more you're denying the very fact of what you say you want to achieve. What's, yeah. Leia, what's Princess Leia say in Star Wars when Darth Vader has a really close diminutive little Princess Leia? The more you squeeze our systems, the more we'll slip through your fingers. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a good point, right? Rather than looking at just an animal social institution as being one thing, it's really not. Really, you have one social institution per tribe, per group. And so the integration of these tribes or groups into one thing creates an issue because 
one is always viewing the other as the other, yes. the capital yep. O of yep. it, right? Yep. And that's sort of the, not the downfall yet, but the struggle with human institutions is, is this sort of um, non-existent, but, you know, primal sort of, you know, delineation of the other. So how does institutional foundations affect our free will and autonomy? So what we were just talking about, right, this, this idea that everybody should be equal, um, we could consider that moral, right? And again, our discussion of nihilism last week can, can come in here. But so we, I think that if you polled a lot of people, they say, is treat, you know, and you said, is treating people equally a, a stance on morality? I think a lot of people would say yes. Do our institutions have the ability to, um, affect our morals in a way to say no people shouldn't be treated equal or do they have to couch it in terms that make it appear as equality while actually maintaining uh an inequality or discrimination uh, I, I think it's i think it's that i mean <clears throat> there are plentiful people though who don't want people to, to to consider history well, when you erase history, then you get to say whatever you want, right? It's a, it's a classic move. It's a classic, and, and and so institutions can be formidable if people who are afraid of of history and knowledge oh, are know that that's going to be developed. Well, let's let's corporatize an institution, an educational institution. Let's just make it about the money. Let's let's measure uh, let's measure success by how much you might make in a paycheck once you graduate from a college. Let's say, uh, but success is about what you make in your paycheck, not about history. History is is frightening to to people, and and we take things for granted that we because we don't remember our own history. Just talking about our country, and I'm not I'm not trying to stir all. It's just we got to go somewhere, right? Like, there was no United States. There were no sets of institutions making the United States. This was a country that many other people lived in, and therefore, by their presence, owned. Our ancestors moved in. Uh, plentiful ancestors, complex ways. But we weren't going to go into all that now because we, some of us know the story and took over and smashed and controlled and shut down and killed swaths of human beings and took their institutions away because ours were better because this should be our place. This land is your land, this land is my land, but it's not somebody else's land that it used to be. And, and, and when we don't think about that, we think, well, our institutions are wonderful. The United States will last forever. We just believe in all of these things. And we don't think about what that arose from and what that was built on. Then we cannot have healthy institutions that continue to grow, that teach us humility, that teach us what have we learned from our mistakes. That's what institutions should be doing, not Let's perpetuate the same old thing. Uh, the, the, what's, here's another one of those truisms. Uh, if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. Mm. 
Yeah. That doesn't work in a dynamic company, does it? No. And and it and it doesn't work for people who well, you know, I know that I shouldn't adjust my diet at all because I like my diet and that's what it is. And it doesn't matter whether I'm twenty or I'm sixty or I'm eighty. I can just eat the same things in the same amounts in the same ways. Well, sure, you can. You're not gonna get the same results. <laughs> yeah. So no, I think that's that's an important illustration because you know, we we talk about the American government a lot. As if it were just this thing that always existed. Right. And part of the reason we think that is because, you know, the, the political and educational systems that are in place, um, ha don't really emphasize the fact that we took somebody else's land and that those people are now living on reservations, right? You, we have sort of corralled them into these, you know, and the institutions that do do that are the ones that are targeted. No, you can't say that. No, you can't teach that. No, you, oh, knowledge is dangerous. Yeah. Knowledge is power. <laughs> right. So this idea of whether our foundations can affect our autonomy or free will, you know, I think that the classic case study of that, you know, in the 20th century is, is Nazi Germany, right? Um, you look at that and, and what I, you know, what has been said about it that really strikes the main chord, right? Is mm -hmm. that lots of people look at that time frame and those people and they go, yeah, you know, they were monsters, they were animals, but they weren't. They were human beings, yep. right? The Nazis were human beings, just like you or I, mm -hmm. that were manipulated into doing these terrible things. They're, they're, they're autonomous, which isn't to say that they, they weren't complicit. They were definitely complicit. But the ability of an institution to manipulate people into acting a certain way shouldn't be underestimated. And I think yeah. that we can all look at our own institutions. You know, we have listeners all around the world. So there's a plethora of different governments, Absolutely. different religions, different social institutions that each have their own effect on how our listeners perceive their identity, their sense of, you know, their free will. You know, I won't put it in quotations necessarily, but half quotes, we'll say, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. where, you know, we all make decisions, but at the same time, we're all inclined or, or canted towards a certain way of viewing things, towards a certain way of behavior, and it requires critical thinking and, and really examining something in order to, to break out of that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, of course, Nazi Germany is kind of that example. Do you think something like that could happen? Again, or do you think that it, it's that happening? Is it, it, it happens now. It happens in smaller scale now. I mean, I, I won't say that it's point for point exactly the same thing, but genocides happen all around the planet. Uh, Putin wants the Ukraine back because he says the Ukraine never existed separately. He's denying history. You know, it's and and we know these things. There, there's there's a writer named Clay Shirky. He's he's a well journalist on econo on economics and sociology, and he's younger than I am. <laughs> Most everybody is anyway, and 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 he says that institutions will try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's the big one, right? Because and I think it comes back to that observation, right? Is if we view the Nazis as being monsters or animals, it's easier to 
to, you know, have that division, have that separation, to view them as other, to view them as a thing. And I think that that makes it easier to take action against them in a certain way. Well, what does right? what does the military what does does any military do? It dehumanizes the enemy. Why? Because that makes them easier to smash. Hmm. Yes, it, the the Nazis were a horror. The, the things that they did were abominable, execrable. But they were human beings. But their ideas were repellent and awful, and people got subsumed into it and swept up into it. Because an institution that was arising out of ancient institutions was saying, no, this is the way. <laughs> and not in an... <laughs> You know, if if let's go to pop culture again before we get to just everybody says, oh no, we don't want to hear about. It. Okay, so so there's a show, The Mandalorian, right? And what's the common thing in Mandalorian culture? The phrase that they always say, "This is the way." This is the way. But in recent episodes, and this, well, I'm not going to be a spoiler for people who, are, but there's serious questioning about: Is there more one than one way for this to be the way? And so if this is the way, what is this? And is there a common this underneath all the other differences? That's deep stuff mm. packaged in a Disney Star Wars thing. That this is the way in the United States. What is the way? What do we really believe as opposed to what we say we believe? <clears throat> yeah, and anytime we try to, you know, apply broad you know, categorizations, you know, broad characteristics or categorizations to a, a group. Yes. I mean, that was the downfall of, of the, I mean, that was the problem with the Nazis, right? Is, is doing that to other groups of people, to the Jews or to the blacks, you know, and you, when you look at government issues, when you look at the political environment today and you see the government target, you know, a certain political party targeting a group of people, yeah. That that should always send up an alarm, right? Whether yes, it should. It's racial or based on you know gender or sexuality or or politics. Yeah, or even politics, right? You know, the big movie that just came out was Oppenheimer, right? Yeah. Part of the backstory of that movie was was Oppenheimer's involvement with the Communist Party, right? And you know, McCarthyism and and you know all of this different these different things that play into it, but. I think that that's, I think that's the main takeaway from this idea of the power of social institutions is that philosophy is all about looking at categories and picking them apart until you realize that they're artificially constructed things, right? That are just meant to group yep. things together. And that's what's needed when we're looking at these sorts of concepts is not just the wholesale acceptance of the characteristics that are provided to a group no we need to break apart what it is about these groups that have things that should be protected or should be taken a harder look at right mm -hmm. but so given this do you think an institution's foundations exert more explicit or implicit influence on people that's a really interesting question because both happen. When you say more, does, is it more explicit or 
implicit. I think to determine that, one would have to look at what your context would be institution. Do you, are you, a, are you a worker within the institution and a member of the institution, or are you somebody who the institution is serving? And, and, and are those things different? If you're in a company, you're in a, okay. So, yeah, I think that, but, yeah, yes. I think this can be broken down across institutions, right? Because yeah, I think with yeah, businesses, it, it can. I think with businesses, it's almost always more explicit influence, right? Uh, the business <coughs> that people work for, usually doesn't have much impact on how they think about the world, but it definitely has an impact on how they act. They show up for work. They work eight hours a day. They do a job. Whereas with a religious institution, right, that's where it gets kind of interesting because um, you could have people that, that are part members of a religious institution that ha are deeply, implicitly influenced by the institution. Yeah. And you might have others that have no implicit um, effect from the institution, but they're looking to get something else from it that's not necessarily religious. They want it to be a different type of social institution, one where they get together and they meet people and they do certain things. Yeah, they want they want it to be social or they want it to be transactional. I'll do this, if you'll do that. You know, the, the bargaining with God kind of thing. Yeah, religion's <laughs> and, you know, a, religion is an interesting run, right? Because you could have people on both ends of the spectrum, right? I think that if you're implicitly influenced, you're going to be explicitly influenced. I think that's, you know, in, in a religious context, that's almost a given. I, I think that is a given. Now, you're back to the company thing, because you're talking about a manufacturing company. I'm going to be talking about an educational institution. And there are different kinds, there are different kinds of pressures. Mm. Uh, if an educational institution is, is uh, having to adjust to a law which is written with vagary to be malignly, uh, to be threatening, but to make you cautious about what you might think about teaching, rather than teaching from what you are, are trained and experientially given to know, and seeking more truth beyond that. But if there's this, oh, but if you tread a little too far, we're going to fire you. That's not the same model exactly that's in the manufacturing world. However, I would, I would assert that even in the manufacturing world, there are implicit, you know, you, you can come for eight hours a day, you can come and do your job. But even then, in some places, that's not good enough. How much more are you giving than the, than the so-called minimum we're asking, when the minimum we're asking is forty hours plus plus of your life mm. and your and your health and your your the whole dynamic as an individual, your identity must kind of align with us to some extent, or you're not a good fit anymore. Not all companies are that way, but clearly Starbucks is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? and I, yeah, and I think that this is where we're getting into what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, which is the overlap of social institutions. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, you could debate whether or not that's a good thing, right? Because you can imagine a uh, an, edu an educational institution that is also a business institution and where that part of it is emphasized. You can imagine a religious institution 
that also emphasizes a business institution mm -hmm. aspect or a religious institu institution that emphasizes a political institution aspect. Yeah, they, they In my mind, I have a hard time um, imagining a scenario where the overlap of these institutions is a positive results in a positive effect. I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm struggling to imagine. <laughs> it's yeah, me too. Uh, because the moment we slow down and think about what the institutions are explicitly about, but what they seem to be implicitly about, uh, then there are serious questions. It doesn't mean that they're all wrong, and we go back to nihilism and say nothing. Let's have nothing. We we need that. You know, libertarians want almost nothing. They're they're not far from nihilism, but there's a, there's a there's a there's a spot. There's a sweet spot in between. But if you say it to, uh, nothing matters, nothing matters, nothing, uh, then you will enter that cynical or or static spot that you talked about at the beginning one end of the static scale and so we if but if we our institutions we believe in them enough to say that they can be better that they can address things our companies are our companies willing to be better or do they think they're at the top of the pinnacle and they don't have to listen to anybody they can throw away workers because after all there are more workers that's different than saying you know what we probably could do better either with, with our resources or their time. But there are people within any company, whether it's a university company or a manufacturing company, that will say, yeah, we're going to do better because we're just going to make sure that you're, you can, we can do more with less and even more with even less. And then everything with nothing. Mm. And now you're back to nihilism again. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a really powerful statement, and I I think that highlights it really well. Do institutions reflect collective orogalarchic will? Do you think on the whole? Oh, oh well, <laughs> that oh, depends on the level of the institution. I think it depends on coming back to what we were saying earlier. The 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 life stage of it, right? When we think about these things as having yeah, a life yeah, stage, yeah, very good, very good, um, yeah. You know, I think that the institutions always start with the will of the collective, but I think they always end with the will of the Ogilarchy. If an institution lasts, and and because you acknowledge the fact of the the global reach that people are listening with us, all right, so small but important numbers of people here and there. I think if an institution, as you say, grows into its early senescence, then it, <clears throat> even, even if into its late middle age, it gets far too confident about itself and its path. And it's very easy at that point to say, well, our primary purpose is to make money for a few people. Our primary purpose to make money for a few people means that a lot of other people can be mistreated. And, and barely survive on the wages that they have. Yeah. <clears throat> but that's okay because that's how it's supposed to be. Because it's, you know, we're, we live in a top down society, which is what capitalism is about. It's about what every human <laughs> politically, politi socio political model sooner or later 
I think, comes to. There, there isn't one that's across the board idealistically equalizing. Unless the equalizing is to reduce people to the lowest possible means they can live within. Mm. Because that's a method of control. Oh, I'm a Marxist now. No, you know, if I am, fine. But I, I, it's not that simple. No ideology is, is, is fine if it becomes the, uh, the ironclad ideology by which can never be questioned. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that, that's, that's a really good point. And I think that, you know, that it manifests itself in different ways through different institutions. But, um, what I, I want to avoid, um, that maybe I haven't made clear thus far in the, in the episode is it, I don't want to posit that the will of the people is necessarily always the right thing either, because you can have situations where the, the, the view of the majority is actually not a view that is moral or is, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. worthwhile. And so then that can cause, but I think that even in that case, um, that creates a self-perpetuating cycle in which the concentration of that view into the ogolarchic will creates an even worse situation than it did if the collective will were, were demonstrated. We, we, we make a mistake constantly about this idea of the, the will of the people. As if the will of the people is ignored if it's not entirely enacted the all-or-nothing view i think that's what we're dealing with um in this uh, attempt at more and more and more squeezing uh, of people back to the idea of of compromise you nobody should have to compromise on the equality of human beings to me that's resolute that's that, that anything that it's attacks that is wrong. It's not moral. <laughs> um, and probably that, that was an overarching situation, the statement that people could tear apart too. But yet, no. We say majority rule. Well, what we mean by that is the majority of people who vote for things, um, vote for a person to be in office, would be in office. Majority of people in our country, uh, don't vote for that person. He shouldn't be in office, or she shouldn't be in office, or they shouldn't be in office. It's no more complicated than that. Now we complicate it uh, in the system in a number of ways, but but that's resolute also in our founding documents and systems. Yeah, I think that a good a good example of this would be the educational system, higher educational system, right? Because if you if the will of the people is <clears throat> to be educated, um, then that's one thing. But if the will of the people is to have a piece of paper in order to obtain a job that pays them more money, and that's what they demand of the educational institution, then the will of the people is not correct because it doesn't align with the purpose of the institution, which is to create and disperse knowledge. And I think the creation and the dispersal of the knowledge yeah. is a purpose, and purposes, by extension, have meanings, which means that 
they cannot be nihilistic. That well said. Yes, and there is a misconstrual of on of some institutions on through and by people who don't accept that that's what that institution is about. You can be, become extremely educated in any process, craft, profession, and you can become educated for the sake of being educated. But it's not all going to happen in the same institution. And this is where we, you know, <clears throat> I think our culture would be much happier if it would leave universities to try to figure themselves out and continue to educate in the ways that universities were established and have the constant questioning of, uh, of internally of what is the truth and how do we get to it. You know, that's the core. Mm. And, and we have institutions that teach plumbing, construction, electricity, computers, and so on and so forth. But it's all been mushed into the idea of college. And then it, it pushes away anything like the humanities in so many places now. No, we don't need that. That's old hat. We don't, we don't need gender studies. No, no yes, we sure do. But, but that's because we gotta, we gotta just make room for, we gotta have a job. Well, okay. It's noble, honorable, and necessary for us to have jobs. Nobody's saying jobs aren't important, but, but the training and the teaching and the work in a university are not primarily always first order about getting a job. It's about thinking. It's about developing your mind and your intellectual experience and, and, and your ability to Olympic proportions if you can get there. Not everybody can. Okay. But the primary goal is not to teach you to be a plumber or a statistician or, or uh, an electrician as the first order of things. And when you tell people that universities as an institution really should be about saying, <clears throat> here are the only courses you need to take in order to know what it is you're going to go out and do your job with, the people who are fundamentally pushing that do not understand what a university is about. They do not understand what a college is about. And so the social pressure forces institutions to change because they take over an institution and try to remake it. This is no different than a virus invading a body and killing it or, or, or severely debilitating it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that there's, you know, I think that's an important piece of the puzzle is that the, the collective will isn't necessarily always going to be moral or always aligned with the purpose of the institution, but also other social institutions are going to have influences that affect other ones. And again, education is a good example, right? Because, you know, in the 1950s, the amount of funding that educational institutions got from the government allowed them to provide education in the root of what they were meant to do, which was to advance knowledge, to help people create will. Without any increase in funding, as we've seen, 
then the education, an educational institution is by, is necessarily forced to adopt a business model in order to ensure its own survival. And by adopting mm-hmm. that business model, now not only do you have a bottom up pressure from the collective, uh, you know, the will of the collective people to have job training, but now you have pressure from the top down from a political organization to an educational system through the withholding of funding, forcing them to adopt a model that does not cohere with what the values and purpose of the institution is. So really in that case, you know, when we philosophically critically examine what is the purpose of an educational institution and we look at what is being explicitly stated, like you mentioned earlier, right, in the mission statements, in the ca- you know, the things that set them apart and on, what's on the web page, right, mm-hmm. of what they oh. say they're doing, the explicit versus the implicit of what is actually being done, which is job training, right? Um, you go, hmm, well, what are the foundations of this institution and are they still intact? Right. And so I think that's a good example. And, um, you know, I think that this has been a good conversation (laughs) that's going to set us up for next week's. If, you know, I know nihilism is a bit of a heavy topic. This has been a bit of a heavy topic. Next week's is going to be fun. We're going to talk about, um, how traditional views of media and entertainment um, are affecting modern media and entertainment. Yeah. So again, in the same vein of what we've been talking about today, but a little bit lighter, I think. Yeah. So until next time, keep pondering.